Wow. So this is it. We've reached the final verses of, of 1 John. And as you saw on the slides earlier uh, during the scripture reading, the mysterious voice behind all the scripture readings was my dear, dear friend and who is my spiritual father, uh, Bert Sampson. Um, my hope was to have Bert here to read it live uh, this morning, but he's one of those, you know, snowbirds and uh, wasn't quite ready to come up north. Uh, so now he's traveling right now. He'll be here in a few weeks. And if you don't know Bert, a lot of you are like, ooh, the mystery's out. It's Bert, which means nothing to you because <laughs> you don't know Bert. For those of you who do know Bert, you know that he is a dear, dear man. And he loves the Lord. He loves his wife, loves his family. He loves Jesus. He, he, he loves the church. And uh, he has loved me like a son. And uh, I am grateful for his role in my life. Um, if you don't know him already, I'm going to apologize in advance, Bert, for this. I think that you should invest your summer months getting to know Bert. So everybody should try to line up a time, a weekend to get together with Bert. And, and he is now booked for the summer. So uh, get to know Bert when, when he's home. He'll be here in a, f- in a few weeks. Well, as I've mentioned several times in, in this series, John wrote this letter to help believers know that they have eternal life, right? He wants them to have assurance of their salvation, to know that that they're genuine Christians, they're genuine children of God. And so I titled this series, That You May Know. And every week of the series, we've been looking at different things that John wants his readers to know. Well, this morning, as we arrive at the final nine verses, not only are we going to see John's stated purpose for writing this letter, but he's also going to hit us, you know, in, in rapid fire with several other things that he really wants his readers to know. So let's begin reading in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the very first thing that we see, you know, here in, the, in, in this, these closing verses is that John is making it clear who he is writing to. He is writing to believers, right? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. This letter was written to Christians. Now, in his previous book, In his previous book, The Gospel of John, he wrote at length, right, about who Jesus is and and all that Jesus had done. In fact, if you've never read the book of John, like that needs to rise to the top of your reading list almost immediately. Like this week, if you have time, 21 chapters, you'll blaze right through it. It's easy reading, and, and it is an amazing book about who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. And at the end of that book, at the end of John's uh, John's gospel, in similar fashion to this letter, John says this in verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
John says that he wrote his first book, the Gospel of John, so that those who are not Christians would become believers. But this letter, the one we've been working through, was written to those who already believe. And in the second half of the verse, in verse 13, he tells us why he wrote it to these believers. He says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This letter was written to believers in order for them to have confidence that they are truly saved. And we've talked about this a lot, but, but false teachers had confused them, right? They'd come out of the church and they were teaching heresies about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. And it was causing these believers to doubt their salvation, wonder if they were true Christians or not. And John does not want believers walking around wondering and worrying about whether they are secure in their relationship with God. So he says, I write these things to you. So what are the things that he has written in order for us to know that we have eternal life? Well, it's all the things that we've been studying in this letter in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and, and in the first half of chapter 5. John is writing these things so that they would know that they have eternal life. And as we've made our way through this letter, we have seen that, that John has given us really three tests to know whether or not we are true Christians. The tests of right beliefs, the test of right living, and the test of right relationships. First, John tells us that Christians have right beliefs. They believe the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Second, he says that true Christians are characterized by right living. They're not perfect. He's made that clear throughout the letter, right? But they love God, and they seek to live their lives in obedience to His commands. And third, true Christians have right relationships. They have fellowship with God and they have fellowship with one another. Their lives are marked by a love for God and a love for other believers. So, for four and a half chapters now, John has been presenting these things so that we would know if we are indeed true believers. So we need to ask ourselves, a few questions. Do I believe the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done? Do I believe it? And we talked about what belief means last time, right? It's more than just intellectual assent, right? It's a confident hope that we place our full trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Have I put my trust in Jesus for my salvation? Is my life characterized by obedience to God? Yeah, I make mistakes, you know, I mess up, but I am seeking righteousness and I am pursuing a holy life. Do I love God? Do I love other Christians? Do I see evidence of His Holy Spirit in me, me abiding in Him and Him abiding in me? And here's the thing, if we answer yes, to those questions, if you're saying, yes, 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 John says that we should have confidence 
that we are true believers in Jesus Christ. We are genuine Christians. And if we are genuine Christians, John says that we know that we have eternal life. Amen? That's huge. According to God's word, according to God's word, we can have confidence that we are saved. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, John's words here should fill you with joy, right? They should fill you with courage, and they should fill you with confidence. But our confidence doesn't end with this verse. Look at what John writes next in verses 14 and 15. In verses 14 and 15, he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. That sounds like an amazing couple of verses, doesn't it? John wants us to know that not only do we have confidence of eternal life, but because we are God's children, we know that he hears our prayers. That's awesome. Verse 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. Other translations, I think, translate it better. <clears throat> it says that this is the confidence that we have in his presence or before him. Think about this for just a second. Because we are God's children, we enjoy a real relationship with the God of the universe. Let me just say that again. Because I'm God's child, I enjoy a real relationship with the God of the universe. If that doesn't make you go, wow, you're just not thinking about it, right? You're not really thinking about what that means. He invites us into his presence. When we talk with God in prayer, we are coming before the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Invited. Invited. That's incredible. And he calls us, he calls us his children, right? Think about it as a, as a parent, how much you love having your children in your presence, right? I had to thank my boys for hanging out with us for the day yesterday because they're teenagers now. And uh, they're, 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 they have licenses and they can drive places and, you know, they can do that. So they don't, they don't need to hang out in my presence anymore, right? But when they do, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. As parents, we love spending time with our children. And, and, and God invites us and gives us access to him day or night. You can call on God and go into his presence any time. Try doing that with a governor, Try doing that with a senator or the president, right? And they're like here, right, compared to God, right? And God says, you can come into my presence anytime. Man, I tried calling an airline the other day. I had to wait on, on hold for over an hour to talk to a representative. I can talk to God anytime I want, and he is listening. Charles Spurgeon said that true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. He, he says it better than I do, but he is the prince of preachers, so we got to give him that. What an amazing privilege, right, that we have to be able to go and talk 
with God in prayer. Our access to God through prayer is a gift. Do we realize that it's a gift? And it's a vitally important part of our growing relationship with God. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. There you go. There's a picture. How's your prayer life? You talking to God? Think about what your relationship would be like with your spouse or your children or your friends if you never communicated with them. You wouldn't have much of a relationship, would you? And yet somehow, I think somehow, we get this idea that we can just have a relationship with God and we never have to talk with Him or listen to Him, right? What kind of relationship do we have if we don't talk to God and read His Word, listen to His Spirit, right? It's a relationship. John says that if we ask anything according to His will... He hears us. Now, the word that he uses for hears is so, so much more than simply hearing the sound of our voice. It means that God is inclining his ear to our prayers. He's not just hearing. He's listening. He's listening. And you and I both know that there's a huge difference between someone hearing us and someone listening to us. And I'm intentionally not looking at my wife right now because she will tell you that, that Chris has a lot of learning to do when it comes to hearing versus listening. So the thing is, it's, it's, it's almost become comical. Like She literally was writing down something for her journal the other day, like a, 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 a conversation between the two of us. And she said something like, she, she looked sad. I said, why are you sad? She said, because my husband doesn't listen to me. And I said, I said, who? <laughs> and she said, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh, right, your husband, oh, that's me. Um, I heard you, but I wasn't listening. So... Um, it's definitely an area, you know, and you know what that's like, right? When you're talking to someone, you can tell that they're hearing you, but they're not really listening. And it's frustrating. But that's God said, uh, John says here that God inclines his ear. He's listening to us. And John says that, that he's describing the type of prayer that God is waiting to answer. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John tells us that there's a type of prayer that we can pray that God is inclining his ear towards. He's telling us that when we pray this type of prayer, we can be confident that God will grant our request. Now, I don't know about you, but those are the types of prayers that I want to be praying, right? You want to pray prayers that's like, yeah, I see God answering my prayers and he's, he's, he's listening and, and it's happening and the things that I'm praying for, we're seeing happen. So what kind of prayers does John say that God hears and prays? Well, he tells us in verse 14, they are the prayers that we ask, what does it say? According to his will. When we pray according to God's will, 
we can be confident that God is going to grant our requests. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. There are times when we wish that those, you know, four words were just a little bit different, right? Instead of according to his will, don't we find ourselves wishing sometime that it said according to my will, right? According to our will. If you pray anything according to your own will, God will answer your prayers. Like God was some kind of a genie in a lamp just waiting to grant your wishes. Well, that's impossible really, right? Because if he did that, then both the Golden State Warriors and the Celtics would win the championship this year, right? Because I know that I'm praying for that. No, not really. Well, kind of. I don't know if I'm really praying for it, but I'm certainly hoping for it. God, please let the Celtics win the championship. But God, please, how about this one? Please let me pass this exam even though I didn't study. You know? Who hasn't prayed that prayer? God, please give me millions of dollars so that I can use it all for your glory. I don't want it. It's all for your glory, right? But what about the more serious prayers? What about the more serious requests? What about prayers like, God, please help me to find a spouse? I don't want to be single for the rest of my life. Or Lord, please help us to get pregnant. We so desperately want to be parents. Or how about, God, please, would you please heal my loved one who is sick? I'm not ready to say goodbye. What about those prayers? Those aren't silly, are they? Those are sincere, heartfelt prayers that we bring as requests to God. And sometimes these requests are granted and sometimes they're not. Brothers and sisters, what happens when our will and God's will are not the same? Do we turn away from God or do we draw closer to him? Do we push God away or do we trust that his will is perfect and he alone knows what is best for us, what is best for others, and what is best for his glory? Do we trust him when our will and his will don't seem to align? And I'm not saying that this is easy. It's not easy, is it? It can be really, really hard. But this is the way that Jesus lived his life during his earthly ministry. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Could I say that in the morning when I wake up? I'm not here today, God, to do my own will. I'm here to do the, your will the one who's sending me out into this world. Could you pray that? How about on the night before Jesus was crucified as he prayed and he cried out to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
What did he say? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, look at these words. Not my will, but yours be done. Did Jesus, was his will, was he, I just, I want to go die on a cross. So excited. I'm excited to go to Israel. Wouldn't be super excited about going to a cross, you know? And Jesus says, honestly, if I'm just being honest with you, God the Father, maybe there's another way. If there's another way, let's, let's do that. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was praying according to God's will. And God's will required Jesus' suffering. It required it. The cup did not pass from Jesus. But Jesus embraced the will of the Father. Can you do the same? Can you pray that prayer? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus lived and he prayed according to God's will. And he set us an example for how we should live and how we should pray. And when we live and we pray according to God's will, we're going to see God answering our prayers. In John 15, in John 15, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's a big if in there though, right? The big if is, are you abiding in him and are his words abiding in you? But if that is the case, he says, ask whatever you wish. How can he say such a thing? Because if you're abiding in him and his word is abiding in you, what are you going to wish for? You're going to wish for the things that bring him the most glory, right? And you'll pray those things and it will be done for you. Earlier in this letter in chapter 3, John said, uh, verses 21 and 22, John said, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. What were his commandments? Do you remember what those were? To know his son and to love others. He says, man, if you're you're doing that, I'm going to grant whatever you ask. Because you're going to ask for the right things. Brothers and sisters, as we grow in our relationship with God and we spend time with Him in prayer, as we spend time studying His Word, as our hearts become more and more consumed with doing what pleases God and living for His glory, something changes in us. Our hearts begin to long for the things that God's heart longs for. We find ourselves praying for the things that we know are going to bring him glory. We pray for victory over sin in our lives. Do you pray for that? God wants to answer that prayer, right? We pray for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. God, would you develop patience in my life? Be careful with these prayers, right? You pray for patience, what does God do? He gives you opportunities to practice patience, right? 
but he will, and he will develop you. He'll help you grow and become more and more like his son, Jesus. God is very willing. You say, God, please give me opportunities to share your love with others and point people to your son, Jesus. Do you think God is going to give you opportunities to share his love and point others to Jesus? Of course he will. We find ourselves praying for the things that bring God glory, and we find our, our prayers being answered. We find ourselves praying in the times when we don't know what his will is. This is what I'm thinking, Lord, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, and it will be. John Stott says that prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. See, the key to God hearing and granting our requests is found in living and praying according to God's will. And so having now emphasized this confidence that we have that our prayers will be answered when we pray according to his will, John now turns his attention to a very specific type of prayer that believers should be engaged in. And some of you have been waiting in your seats to get to these verses. Verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Do you remember a few weeks back when I told you that it's a good thing that I teach verse by verse through a passage? Because if I didn't, there might be some verses that I might be tempted to avoid. This is a good example. This is a good example. Because I know that the question that is on everyone's mind when they read these two verses is, what is the sin that leads to death? That's the stuff that's jumping off the page at us right now. We're looking, we can't even not look at it, right? It's like, don't look at the man behind the curtain, right? It does say sin that leads to death. We're mesmerized by it. We want to know what is this sin that leads to death. Well, it should come as no surprise that commentators throughout history have debated what exactly John is referring to here. There's a reason why you're looking at it and saying, what is it? Is John talking about physical death here? Or is he talking about spiritual death? Is this a sin that is committed by a believer? Or is this a sin that is committed by an unbeliever? And no surprise here, a lot of how you might approach interpreting this verse might have something to do with your existing theology, right? If you believe that people can lose their salvation, you might interpret it one way. If you believe people can't lose their salvation, you might go another way with your interpretation. And I want to tell you that after literally spending hours reading different commentators and studying this passage, 
I got to tell you that I am no closer to really settling one way or the other on this passage. I know that's very disappointing for all of you, but I think you know this. Chris does not know everything, um, and that is 100% true. But some people do believe that the sin that John is referring to here is any sin that a believer commits which God deems so severe that he punishes that person with a physical death almost immediately often. Think Ananias and Sapphira. There's biblical precedent for it, right? So you'd say, say, well, not saying to pray for that. You know, God struck him dead. Others believe that John isn't talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. They believe that John is, is talking about the sins of unbelievers, which lead to eternal death and separation from God. In the context of this letter, many would argue that John would have been referring to the false teachers who had gone out from the church and were teaching heresies about Jesus. Now, I have my leaning on this passage and what I think um, John is referring to, but I'm actually not going to tell you what that is. Because here's the thing. The, the sad part about a passage like this, these two verses is that we can become so focused, so focused on what is unclear in this passage that we miss the obvious point that John is trying to make. In fact, I read entire commentaries about these two verses that never addressed the primary point that John is trying to make. They spent all their time developing the different arguments about what does John mean by the sin that leads to death that they completely ignored the obvious point that John is making here. These verses are not primarily about the sin that leads to death. John is writing these verses to encourage believers about their responsibility to pray. John wants us to know that we have a responsibility to pray. He has just finished, he just finishes in the, in the verses that we just read about uh, before this, these two, about the confidence that we have in prayer, and now he says that as believers, if we see a brother or a sister who's committing sin, we should intercede on their behalf, praying to God for them. But I know that when we read those verses, that's not the first thing that we see, is it? He tells us that God will answer that prayer and give that brother or sister life. That's the point that John is making in these verses. We have a uh, privilege and we have a responsibility to intercede on behalf of one another. When we see another believer who's in sin, our first response, our first response should be to go to God in prayer. But far too often, our first response is to go to others to share, right? Rather than taking it to God, we take it to everybody else in the name of concern, right? Is it wrong to talk to another brother or sister about a brother or sister who's struggling? Depends on your heart motive, I guess, doesn't it? Why are you sharing it? John says, go to God in prayer when you see somebody else wandering into sin. Because that's what love does. That's what love does. Love wants to see this person set free, right? Throughout this letter, John has been emphasizing that, that, that 
True believers do what? They love one another. And our love for one another is demonstrated, according to chapter 3, by our actions, right? In chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, John said, if we see a brother or sister who has physical needs and we have the ability to help them, we are expected to meet that physical need, right? Remember that, chapter 3? Similarly, if we see our brother or sister who's in spiritual need getting entangled in sin, we are expected to pray for them because that's what love for one another looks like. We have a responsibility to pray. By the way, it doesn't always end there, does it? That's the first response. Sometimes you do need to, you got to go to that brother or sister, right? And to say, man, I love you enough to say I'm concerned. But you know in your heart whether you're going is like, ha, 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 caught you, right? Versus, man, I'm really concerned. There's a big difference, isn't there? And you know it. So John has emphasized the confidence that we have in our salvation. He's emphasized the confidence we have in prayer. He's given us very specific uh, command here to pray for our brothers and sisters when they've wandered into sin. And now as John brings this letter to a close... He's going to hit us in rapid fire with three more statements of confidence regarding things that we know as believers, three things that he's already touched on in this letter. So I'm not going to elaborate greatly on on all of these. Um, Verses 18, 19, and 20 all begin with the words, we know. We know, we know, we know. So let's just look at these really quickly one at a time. Verse 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John says that we know that we do not practice sin, and Jesus protects us from Satan. In chapter 3, verse 9, John had said, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John reminds these readers one more time that God's children do not practice sin. They cannot live in habitual sin because God's Holy Spirit, his seed, abides in them. And John also says that Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, protects his children. Satan is unable to harm them. We talked about the fact that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. John says the evil one does not touch him. In John chapter 17, when uh, Jesus, uh, it's his high priestly prayer, right before he's going to be crucified, He prayed for his disciples and he said this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. John 17, 15. We know that as believers, we do not practice sin and Jesus protects us from Satan. Verse 19, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lives in the power of God of the evil one. John reminds his readers once more that they are not of the world. They're not part of the world system that is under the power of the evil one. We talked about this in chapter two and in in chapter four. 
We know that we are from God. We are from God. We are part of God's kingdom. Amen? In chapter 2, John talked about the world system, and in verse 15, he said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God's system, God's kingdom, and the world system are at odds with one another. You know this. You know it. We are not of the world. We are from God, he says. We are sons and daughters of the king. And finally, in verse 20, John says, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John's final statement of confidence is all about, go figure, Jesus, right? I mean, that's the big issue that John is having to address when he writes this letter, right? Because the, the, the early Gnostics were taking people away from the true beliefs about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. John's been emphasizing the humanity and the deity of Christ. We know Jesus. We know him, and, and we are reconciled to God, the Father, through him. That's what John is saying here. Throughout this letter, John has been addressing all of these teachings and all of these denials about who Jesus is. He wants his readers to know with confidence that it is through Jesus alone that we have been reconciled to God. Through Jesus Christ, God's Son, fully God, fully man, we have been brought back into a right relationship with God the Father, and we've been given eternal life. Amen? And so now, in verse 21, John finishes his letter the way you'd expect him to. Greet so-and-so, and give them a kiss, and do this, and do that, and don't forget to send my greetings to... No, he doesn't do that, does he? This is a very different ending for a letter. John finishes his letter with one final exhortation. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You know, we've talked about the fact that John throughout this letter refers to his audience as his children, his beloved, his little children, my dear children. John loves these believers, doesn't he? And so in one final statement to leave them off, John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the word that John uses for keep here is actually better translated as guard. Guard yourselves from idols. Instead of wrapping this whole letter up with the typical salutations, right, John chooses to bring his letter to a close by reminding believers of the importance of guarding their hearts and guarding their minds from idolatry. John wants us to be aware of the temptation to give our hearts and our minds to lesser things, things which compete with our loyalty and our commitment to Jesus Christ. John says, guard yourselves from idols. 
And he leaves us with a charge which reminds us to keep Jesus Christ on the throne of our hearts. Anybody who's ever wandered away in their faith for a period can tell you that this is exactly what happens if you don't guard your heart from idols. You will drift away, right? John says, don't do it. Don't do it. Guard yourselves from these lesser things. Well, what a remarkable letter uh, 1 John is. I, um, I've learned through this process, I hope you have too, John wrote this letter so that we might know that we have eternal life. And I do pray that you have that confident assurance. I pray that, that, that we would continue to you know, hold fast to the truth of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. I, I pray that we would continue to, to strive to live our lives in obedience to him, living lives which are, are free from sin, and when we mess up, I pray that we, we, we keep short accounts with the Lord, right? We confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Good stuff. And, and I pray that we would be committed to a growing relationship with God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and I pray that we be committed to a growing relationship and love for one another. These are the things that John has been focusing on throughout this letter. And when I get back from Israel, um, we're going to start a new series, and uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. I am so excited about this series, uh, the Joseph, the son of Jacob, our small group. We studied this a, a couple years ago. Uh, Joseph was a remarkable man, and I am absolutely confident that the Lord is going to teach us a lot as we uh, take a closer look at his life and how he persevered in some really difficult circumstances. Looking forward to that. And uh, who knows? Maybe I'll see Joseph in Israel. Probably not. But I am going to see some pretty cool places and looking forward to even seeing the, some of the places where the story of Joseph took place. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, what a gift it is that you have entrusted us, uh, wow, with these words. And, and you've given us the opportunity to study them. You've given me the opportunity to teach them. God, I pray that, that, uh, that you have been glorified through our study in 1 John. God, I pray that the things that were on your heart and on John's heart as he wrote that letter to the original recipients... God, I pray that those things have been, have been received by our hearts as well and that we've applied the truth to our lives. We want to have right beliefs. We want to live right. We want to be in a right relationship with you and, and with one another. And God, I pray that, that as we walk with you and as we, as we live for you, God, that you would give us opportunities each day to be a light. And as the youth last week emphasized that we would let our light shine in such a way that glory would be brought to you, that, that others would see you. God, I pray for your blessing 
on my church family over the next couple of weeks. I pray that you would work powerfully in and through them as they serve shoulder to shoulder in our community. God, I pray that maybe those who don't already know you would see a glimpse of who you are reflected through them. And God, I pray for salvation. Work in them, Lord, work through them. And I pray that you bring us back together again in Jesus' name. Unless, of course, you decide to come first. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.